You may be seated. We enter today into the middle of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, 9 through 15, which was our scripture reading this morning. I'm so thankful for uh, songs and great songwriters. I think about that, uh, the song we sang at the beginning, The Love of God, was written by a man and then sung, I'm sure in churches and in gatherings of Christians. And there was an anonymous man who lived um, in, a, in an insane asylum, locked away from his family, locked away from the world outside. And he wrote the last verse of that song that we sang. I want you to think about that. A man in an insane asylum with no contact with the outside world, wrote that last verse. When he died, they cleaned out his cell, they cleaned out his holding area, and they found it inscribed on the wall of his holding, of his cell, of his uh, uh, place of living. Listen to the words. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. He didn't write about the justice of God, the wrath of God. He didn't write about anything but the love of God. Locked away. A man can express, with no outside contact, a man can express, God loves me. I'm here, I'm going to die in this cell. But the love of God is greater than this cell. The love of God is greater than the outside world. The love of God is the greatest of all things. And if we could fill the ocean up with ink and make the sky a parchment to write on and every stalk of grass a pen to write with, we wouldn't have enough to write about the love of our great God. And yet we struggle to think of God's love in our world where we are so blessed so mercied, so graced with so many comforts. It's a challenge when you look at these words and you think about the writers who wrote them. Here we are in the middle of this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. We've already been talking about their exchange. Nicodemus, the the teacher of the Jews, coming to Christ, posing a question in representation of all the Pharisees when he says to them, to Jesus, we know that you are a great teacher. Come from God. No one could do the signs that you have done unless you were from God. And then Jesus launched out into a discourse, a teaching on what it takes to be in the kingdom of God. No one can come to the kingdom of God, Jesus says, unless he's born again. Nicodemus says, this is, this is impossible. It's, I can't even fathom. I can't even think of how... This could be true. I can't do it, is his cry. And Jesus says to him, you're right. That which is born of the flesh is of the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is of of the Spirit. And, And tucked away is this thought of regeneration that we've been talking about. And regeneration is a word that we get from the Scripture. 
You see on the screen Titus 1, 4 through 7. Paul writes, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There's our word. That's our subject. And it has been our subject for these past weeks. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, rebirth, new life, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, not by our works, He might have said, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's clear that regeneration is the work of a sovereign God alone, and without the washing of regeneration, no man will ever have faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. A man... Jesus says, can see the result of these things. They're earthly things. He says, like the wind. He says, Nicodemus, the wind blows. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but you feel its effects. You see its effects. And he's going to say in our text today, these are earthly things that I'm talking about. Not not high high and lofty things of heaven. These are earthly things. They have results today. Isn't that true? Paul Again, look at his words in Galatians as he tells us the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Look at these words. These are words that we've talked about and we've all read. Uh, It should be on the screen there so you can follow along. Galatians 5, 16 through 21. This, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Jesus said the things that are of the flesh are of the flesh. Paul says, walk in the spirit so you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh is against the spirit, and the spirit is against the flesh. You see, Jesus said, flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. Paul says, walk in the spirit so you're not in the flesh. The flesh is against the spirit. The spirit is against the flesh. And so he continues on. But if you are uh, led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. These are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus says to us in uh, John 3, verse 6, if you look at it in the text. The things that are of the flesh are of the flesh, and the things of the Spirit are of the Spirit. The flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It takes a spiritual being to inherit the kingdom. That's the new birth that Nicodemus is so perplexed by and can't understand. But it's clearly evident what is of the flesh. It's listed for us right here. And it's all around us and it's in our lives. It's in my life. The flesh is there still, isn't it? If you're honest with yourself, don't nod your head. You might convict yourself to those around you. You're convicted enough. I'm convicted enough in my heart that the flesh is real. It's alive. It's dangerous to us. I would contend to you that this thing, the flesh, is the most dangerous of all to us as Christians. Not Satan. Satan is rarely mentioned by Paul in his letters. In Romans, the great doctrinal textbook of Paul, he mentions Satan one time in the close of his letter. But he's always talking about the flesh in that letter. Because we war against the flesh, don't we? The enemy, the greatest enemy of us is us. 
That's our greatest enemy. That's your greatest stumbling block is yourself. Secondarily, the world and then Satan. Most of us never get to Satan. Most of us never win the war against the flesh through the Spirit and through grace. Most of us never defeat the world and the surroundings and the enticements of this world with the Spirit and grace. And so Satan has no need to attack us. We're all weak already. So this is what he's laying out. Now look at the fruits of the Spirit. He gives that to us right after these verses. He comes in after he says, You can't inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verses 22-24, But the the fruit of the Spirit, notice, the works of the flesh, those are the things you and I possess on our own. Nobody has to give them to us. But here he says, the fruit of the Spirit. Not our fruit, not our work, not what I do. What the Spirit does is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If, if, let me say this. If you've heard all of these messages on regeneration and your thought is, I need to go try harder, you've missed it. I've missed it. I need to go well up inside of me some love for other people. I need to be happy all the time. I need to have more patience with my kids. You'll never do it. You'll never be acceptable to God on those terms. How can we be acceptable? Through the fruit of the Spirit. Through the Spirit. Through Him making us a new creation. He does it. We don't. There's no law against these things, Paul says. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So there's no excuse for our sin and our flesh. Though it is alive and though it is real and though it is a real battle. It's no excuse to say, oh well... Laissez-faire, live for today. We'll just go sin so grace might abound. No. Paul says, if you're in Christ, you've crucified those things. They're there. You're dragging that dead man around with you. Every now and then he rises up and he wins a little battle and skirmish here or there and you fall to it. But the Spirit empowers you to crucify that thing every moment of every day through the Spirit, through the grace of God. And so we have Paul's expounding of Jesus' idea. I think it is very likely that Paul has in mind this very text. The flesh is the flesh and the Spirit is the Spirit. The principle of the Old Testament, if you would say. He had these thoughts in his mind as he wrote the letter to the Christians in Galatia. And so, we have the fruit of the Spirit and we have the flesh. And we've talked about all of these things down through the the, uh, context of the conversation. So Jesus has told Nicodemus about the need for regeneration. He's made it clear that regeneration is by God and His sovereignty alone. And He's made it clear that those who are of the Spirit will inherit the kingdom. We have reached the middle of the conversation and Nicodemus is shocked by what Jesus has said. And he responds in verse 9 by saying, How, how, look at it in your text, how can these things be? How can these things be? Today we want to look at the answer to this question. We'll see the reply, a, the reply to a true skeptic and the reason for Jesus coming to the earth. Jesus is now saying to Nicodemus, not only is regeneration of God, not only can you not inherit the kingdom unless you're of the Spirit, He's now saying, you must look to Me in faith if you will be saved and have eternal life. You have to look to Me. You can't do it on your own. So let's walk through the passage. The reply to a true skeptic. Nicodemus is a true skeptic. And I'm using the word true to describe an unbeliever here. 
a, a true skeptic. There are those who do not believe in Jesus and therefore they're not saved, but these unbelievers have genuine questions about the faith. They really come seeking to understand and know, and I believe Nicodemus was a true skeptic. He was trapped in a system of works and religion trying to save himself. And so when he hears this about the spirit and regeneration and the inability of man to save himself, he says, how can it be? How can it be, Jesus? I don't understand. It's obvious that the Jews struggled to accept salvation as a sovereign work of God's loving grace. Paul writes to us about that in Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. Look, speaking of a man like Nicodemus, I bear witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeing, seeking to establish their own righteousness... They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul had a man like Nicodemus in mind when he wrote that text. You need to understand that Nicodemus was like many of you in this room. He was living his life with real passion about being righteous. He wanted to be acceptable. He wanted to be good. He didn't want to be thought of as his, by his fellow man as a bad person. He wanted God to love him and accept him but he wanted it on his terms by his righteousness through his work. And so God had rejected him. And Jesus is saying, you can't be saved that way because all those things you're doing on your own power and your own strength are in the flesh and they are of the flesh and they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You need God. You need the Spirit. You need to look to me in faith, Jesus is saying, if you desire salvation. And so 2,000 years ago, this man, Nicodemus, asked a question that we can identify with. Why was he doomed to eternal punishment? Because he could not accept the fact that salvation is not by works of righteousness. Because he couldn't believe that he couldn't do anything to be saved. He had zeal for God. He was living in a religious system. But salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone, so that when He saves you, you can step forward and say, it's not by the works of my hands, but by Him. I will not boast in myself, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why salvation is constructed this way. Not so that some have it and some don't. Really, God's mind is fixed on His glory, not on not on all of these other side issues. God is focused on how will I gain glory for my salvation and the way it's gained is through it being by Him alone. That's the only way it can be done. And so God is focused and intent on accomplishing His glory through people that are saved. The answer is still the same today. These things are because our great God has commanded them to be. This is a hard reply, but it's the truest reply to a true Skeptic. Jesus says in the text, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? It's an interesting answer. He begins to talk in the plural, we and our. You see it in the text. He's speaking of John the Baptist. 
He's speaking of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is rolling up into one thought, the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist, his forerunner, his disciples, and himself saying, we are bearing witness to you that the Spirit is moving and saving people every day, and their lives are an example of salvation, and yet you don't believe. We're telling you, the wind is blowing. You can see the results. Believe it, and you won't believe. So how are we going to go from these things you can see and talk about things you can't see and expect you to understand? Jesus is in Algebra 1, and these people are asking Him to go to Calculus. And He says, you don't get Algebra 1. How can we go to Calculus? How can we move to advanced things that are difficult to understand if you can't believe what you can see with your own eyes? These, these uh, words, we and our, in this part of the text, stand in stark contrast to Nicodemus, who in verse 2 said, we know that you are a great teacher come from God. It's two groups in the text, isn't it? It's Nicodemus and the Pharisees and Jesus and all true believers. That's the, that's the two sides of the argument. Nicodemus and the Pharisees are saying, we know you're a true teacher, but we just don't believe what you're saying. We can't understand it. How can it be? And Jesus is saying, we're telling you things that you can see with your own physical eyes. You can see the evidence of the Spirit's work. You don't know where it comes from, but you can see it and you won't believe it. So how are we going to tell you things you can't see? We can't move on to calculus. You can't understand Algebra 1. And so we have our text. And we need uh, in our best to see that Jesus is striking at the root of Nicodemus' self-righteousness with these statements. Nicodemus is saying, I'm as good as that guy you say is saved by grace. Why don't, why don't I count? Why, why am I not acceptable? Why am I not good enough, Jesus? Many of you may have the same question in your mind I don't need Christ I'm a good person I can do it I know all these other people need Jesus because they're weak and they can't accomplish the good works necessary but I can do it and you'll decide one day and understand and see possibly too late just like Nicodemus that your works are not enough James Montgomery Boyce tells a story and I think it captures this idea that's in this text if you'll bear with me I want to give you the high points of a story that he told in his commentary about H.A. Ironside, who was a great evangelist and was in San Francisco Bay Area preaching uh, to the Brethren movement back in the early uh, 1900s. And he came to the corner of uh, Market Street and Grant Avenue in San Francisco and came up on a Salvation Army troop that was sharing uh, the gospel on the street. And so he stopped and stood in the back and listened as they proclaimed their testimonies about how God had changed their lives. You know the Salvation Army deals with those who have been down and, and out, don't they? They still do in our day. People that have been caught in drugs, maybe they've been abused in some way or they're alcoholics and they're recovering and they're be, they've been saved, but yet they still battle with these temptations and desires. And so he's watching these people give testimony in the open air. And one of the people there recognizes him as Dr. Ironside and calls on him to give his testimony. And he gives his testimony in which he says, I was saved not by who I am, but by Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. And as he's giving his testimony, he notices a nice dressed man in the back listening with a very skeptical view to what he was saying. And the man pulled out a card and jotted down some words. After it was over, many people kind of milled around there and the man walked up and told Dr. Ironside 
I'd like for you to read the card. So he gets the card and he looks at it. And on the card it says, I challenge you to a debate. Next Sunday at 4 o'clock in the assembly hall. And the subject will be agnosticism. Those who say there might be a God, but we don't know who he is. And Christianity. Ironside recognized the man after staring at him. He was a very well-known agnostic teacher who was a socialist, the head of the Socialist Party in California. So he was not dealing with some rookie. He was dealing with a very intelligent man, and he knew it. And so instead of arguing with him, he did what Jesus did to Nicodemus, this learned Jew. He He asked for evidence, and this is what he said. I will agree to your debate. If you can meet this one condition. Next Sunday, you bring one gentleman who, though he had been in the works of the world, caught up in drugs, maybe given over to sensuality. He was a down and outer, as we call him in our day. You bring him. And his testimony must be that as he listened to you lecture about agnosticism and how the Bible is not true and how Christianity is a failure, that his heart was stirred within him to change his way of life. And now he is a devout agnostic who has changed course and now is a living proof that agnosticism brings hope and life. The only other requirement to the debate is that you bring with you a, a lady. And by the way, you'll have a harder time finding a lady who's in this condition, but you can find her. She's maybe here in San Francisco. You find her with the same testimony that agnosticism has stirred her heart to belief. And so she's changed her life. And it's evident to everyone around her that she is better for society today than she was before she believed in agnosticism. You bring these two people and I will come to the debate. And with me, I will bring at least a hundred who will stand and say, I was a sinner and Jesus Christ saved me. And now the world knows that I'm a different person. And he turned to the Salvation Army little girl captain there on the street and he said, young lady, do you have anyone you can add to this cause? She said, at least 40. He said, I have 40 and I can get 60 more from any church, evangelical church, mission, or gospel organization in this city. I'll have my hundred. And the lady said, if you'll let us be a part, we'll bring our bass, brass band to b- parade you in. And he said, it's set. You find your two, I'll find my hundred. I'll bring 40 of her people and her brass band and we will march in, me in the front, with onward Christian soldiers. The crowd now is applauding because the skeptic, like Nicodemus, says, how can it be? He shook his head and he said, nothing doing. He wouldn't take the challenge because you can't change your life by your own works. You can't change your life by some system of religion. The Spirit of God has to change a man or he won't be changed. And I say we could take the same challenge today to any well-known agnostic atheist in the world. Find two people that are better today than they were before they became atheists or agnostic. And we'll find a hundred to your two who were saved and changed by the grace of God. Our God is powerful. He is saving and changing lives. And this story is just one instance of how that can be used on our behalf. 
A skeptic must be confronted with the overwhelming proof of regeneration, not from an intellectual perspective, but from a practical witness of your life. You won't get far with someone who's a skeptic by arguing. They will win the argument most times. They will have built up fortifications against you. But what they can't argue against is the change the Holy Spirit brings in a man's life. And this is what Jesus immediately does when Nicodemus says, How can it be? He says, Well, here's the evidence. I'm not going to argue with you. Here's the evidence. It's true. And the proof is in the pudding. Or it's in the wind that has changed the life. In verse 13, Jesus simply restates His divine nature. Jesus says that He is the only one with the authority to speak of these heavenly matters because He is the only one who has been in heaven. He's the Son of Man, also the Son of God. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term for Himself because it emphasizes that He is 100% God and 100% man. It does make clear the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Nicodemus understood this as they were sitting there in the dark of the night. We have the answer or the response to a true skeptic. We have the reason that Jesus came to the earth in verses 14 through 15. I'm not so passionate about those things I just preached. I should be more passionate. But I confess, they're there and they have impacted my life, but nothing impacted me in my study more than these two verses. Of the whole chapter of of John 3. These two verses stir my heart. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is drawing on a story in Numbers 21, 4 through 9. I've put it on the screen. From Mount Hor, they, sent, they set out by the way of the, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. They're speaking about the food God rained down out of heaven. Think about their unbelief. These wafers are described to us as airy, light, and as sweet as honey. And they say this stuff is worthless. You can't keep it in your tent. You can't save it for a rainy day. It's only good for one day and it goes away. You can't hoard it for yourself. We don't want this worthless stuff. We want real food. We're impatient. We want to be saved today. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents. Now, fiery is not a description of their color. Fiery is a description of what they do to you when they bite you. They set you on fire. You literally burn with a fever. And so you're in the desert where it's hot or cold, nothing in between, and you get bit by this serpent who then makes you hot with a fever and you know what happens with a fever. You get hot and sweat one minute and you freeze to death the next. And these people are dying from these serpents. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. Change of heart. The food hadn't changed. The scenery hadn't changed. All of a sudden there's trouble in the camp and we want God to help us now. He was worthless a minute ago. But He's our only hope now. 
It's a condition you find yourself in, isn't it? When things are good, it's hard to depend on God. You don't realize there's a war. You don't realize things are not safe and not secure and not good. But let trouble come in your camp. And I promise you will cry out. Help us. Pray for us. You'll go to your priest. Some of you think I'm the priest. I don't know why. Done nothing to earn that title. But you come to me and you confess your sin and ask me to pray for you as if God will hear me and not you. You don't need me. And the people didn't need Moses in a sense. They needed God. So Moses prayed for the people. And, and I pray for you. If you bring me your sin, I'll pray for you. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, this is key to the story, shall live. Make a serpent and put it on a pole. A bronze serpent. So he fashioned a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and put it in the midst of the camp so that everyone who was bit would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus is being foreshadowed in this story by a bronze serpent that is lifted up on a pole. Why is this story significant? Why would Jesus choose this story to represent himself and his sacrifice? I want to give you four reasons. The people could not cure themselves. The people in numbers were stricken by these snakes and they couldn't do anything for themselves. They had a fever and they were dying. Many of them were dying. All of them were becoming sick. It would have made much more practical sense had Moses said, go drum up a concoction. Here's what it's made of. Here's how long you cook it. You drink it and you can save yourself. That would have made good practical sense, but that's not what he did. He did the most impractical thing you could do. He made a replica of the snakes and put it up and said, just look at it and you'll be saved. Barnhouse, uh, a commentator, wrote about this passage. The brewing of potions and the making of salves would have given them all something to do and would have satisfied every natural instinct of their heart to work on behalf of its own cure. But there was nothing of the kind mentioned. They were to cease from human remedies and turn to a divine remedy. The fact that they were not told to make a human remedy is indicative of the greater fact that there is no human remedy for sin. Men have been bitten by the serpent of sin. How are they going to be cured of its bite? There's nothing but death waiting them as a result of their wound unless God Himself shall furnish a remedy. Men rush around in the fury of human religions seeking a a cure to this sin. They perform all sorts of rites, chastising the flesh, humbling the spirit. They undertake fasts and pilgrimages like the man in the Israel camp who refused to look at the serpent but spent his time brewing up potions of his own salvific condition. They're carried off to spiritual death through the poison of sin that is in their being. The man who trusts in religion instead of looking to Christ will be eternally lost. The Jews of Nicodemus' day, and Nicodemus himself were guilty of this. They were making a remedy for their own sin. Let me make this real for you. Some of you go about your day every day with this thought. How can I make myself acceptable to God today? And you don't brew up concoctions and drink poison. This is what you do. If I pray 15 minutes instead of 10 minutes, God will love me more. If I read five verses instead of one, I'll be more holy. 
If I talk to six people instead of two about him, he'll be pleased. If I go to church every time this month instead of a few times this month, he'll love me. All of those things, as good as they may be, are human remedies. They're not what God called us to. What God called us to do is look at Christ, not work harder. Look at Christ, believe in Him, and you will be saved. That's the first thing. There's no human, and it's the natural uh, desire to want to fix yourself, to make yourself better. Secondly, the people bitten by the serpent were not encouraged to self-reformation. Moses didn't hear them crying out for help and say, okay, now here's what you need to do. You're in state A today. You need to try to be in state uh, B tomorrow and C the next day and D the next day. And in a few years, you'll be good enough for God. If you'll work hard, you'll survive this fever. If you'll be better, if you'll do more, if you'll, if you'll sweat a little for Jesus, Jesus will take you. He didn't give them self-reformation. He didn't say... Stop being an alcoholic and then the serpent's bite will go away. Stop being a porn addict and then God will accept you. Stop sinning and then you will be acceptable. That's not what he said. What he said was, wherever you are and you're bitten by the snake, don't get up. Don't run to the snake. Don't touch it. Don't do anything. Roll over on your deathbed and look at the snake from where you are, and you'll be saved. You don't need to get any closer to Jesus before He will accept you. You can't get closer to Jesus. That's not what it's about. Lost man, if you're here today and you hear this, I beg you, look at Christ and leave everything else out. He's all you need, He's all that's acceptable. You can't save yourself with some system of religion. You can't save yourself by being reformed, making yourself better. Three, the people who were bitten by the serpent were not told to pray to the serpent or to walk toward the serpent. This is my favorite because this is what we've done in our day. Please understand this statement before I say it. You may have prayed a prayer crying out to God and that may be the moment of your conversion. But I will say this, you can search the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and you are never commanded to pray a prayer to be saved. You are commanded to believe. Repent and believe. Romans 10 says, confess with your mouth. And that's where we get the prayer, I think. And it had good intentions. But there is no magical words that can be said to transform you into a Christian. Martin Luther was saved by reading the Bible and preparing to teach it and realizing that no matter how much he changed himself, he'd never be acceptable and he needed Christ. And he cried out, hopeless for hope. I was saved at five, never told to pray a prayer. This is what I was told when I came asking about salvation with my dad he said son repent of your sins turn from them and believe in Jesus Christ 
Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. Follow Him. Follow Him. Hear His child. Follow Him. Be made into His image by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm so thankful my dad didn't say, Son, let's bow down. You pray after me. I would have confidence in that prayer, not in Christ. Just like the people, had they been told to go to the serpent and touch it, would have had confidence in the serpent, not in God. And likewise, you'll never find God telling people to walk an aisle. Again, you may have walked an aisle. That's okay. But that's not what saved you. You can't do that. You can't claim that for salvation. Salvation happens for all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the only requirement. That's it. The people were not encouraged to keep a relic or a fragment of the serpent for salvation. I've ran across this one with some of the people I love the most. Dollar bills with dates written on them. Revival pamphlets with their name written in red as the blood of the Lamb's book of life, as memorials of their salvation. God never commanded such. He actually condemns it. Because the people who were saved by this bronze serpent did that. They took the bronze serpent and they kept it. And by the time Hezekiah comes into power in 2 Kings, people have relics. They have pieces of this bronze serpent that they worship. They've named it as a God. And now they worship it for saving them in the wilderness. Why am I so, up, why am I so sounding so harsh against these prayers and these incantations and these things that you walk down an aisle or write on a dollar bill or all that? I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm trying to say if you put anything in the place of Christ, people will grab that thing and not Christ and they will be lost. Don't do it. Don't give them a prop. They don't need a crutch. People need to hold on to Christ alone, in faith alone, by grace alone, for God's glory alone. Don't give them any substitution for Him, and He will be all they have. And I guarantee you, He is all that we need. Hezekiah broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. God did this miraculous work. He healed them from their sin. He healed them from their unrepentance. And they turned the thing into a God. And they worshipped it. Now, I don't know where you are. Maybe you've been worshipping something besides Christ before you came in here today. But all that's necessary for salvation is for you to look to Jesus in belief and you will be saved. Eternal life is yours today if you have faith in Him and Him alone. I say... To you, what Paul said to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, 30-31, the jailer said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's what I'm saying. The remedy for your sin and death is the same as it was for Nicodemus. You must deny yourself, your religious system, your self-righteousness, your comfort in the things of this world, your sense of security and all other things and simply... Believe in Jesus Christ. You must look to Him as the people look to the serpent in the wilderness. There is salvation in no other besides Jesus Christ. There is salvation in nothing besides Jesus Christ. He is your hope and He is your peace. He is your only source of righteousness. Cling to Him. Rest in Him. 
call on Him, believe in Him, and you will be saved. He is the ultimate and only anti-venom for your fallen nature. I beg you, if you burn today with the fiery, burning poison of sin, don't do anything but look at Him and call on Him in belief. And He will save you to the uttermost. He will save you. Let these be your words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. I shall not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Or join with Horatio Bonner as he said, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon, speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save Thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine, and with unfaltering lip and heart I call this Savior mine. His cross dispels each doubt I bury in His tomb. Each thought of unbelief and fear, each lingering shade of gloom. I praise the God of grace. I trust His truth and might. He calls me His. I call Him mine. My God, my joy, my light. Tis He who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because He loveth me. I live because He lives. He is the only hope that we have. Father, we come to You. Our hearts are moved. Oh, there's nothing else except Jesus and His righteousness. He is the serpent lifted up so that we can look to Him from wherever we may be. And with the breath that You give us, we can call out to Him, save us from ourself. Save us from our sin. Save us from our effort. Save us from this religion we live. Save us, Jesus. And God, because of Your love and Your grace and Your mercy and Your faith, we have life through Him and no other. There's all other ground is sinking sand. There's nothing else my hope can rest on. There's nothing else I can recline in. May we think of faith as laying ourselves on Him. He is our support. He is our refuge. You, God, alone in Christ are our Savior. And we have no other hope. And we need no other salve. We need no other cure. We need no other feel good. We don't need feelings. We don't need things. We need You and You alone. So God, I pray for those who might have come to this place today lost. Let them know Your love. Take the scales from their eyes. Awake their dead souls. And let them look at You 
for salvation. Lord, may they, may they not be manipulated by anything or anyone but you. Please, Lord, manipulate their heart. Bring it to you. Save it and make it your workmanship so that you might be glorified in their life. And for all of us Christians that are in the world.